Today we're talking about the Holy Spirit and creation and providence. Um, So the Holy Spirit and his relationship with the natural realm. And I'll tell you something that is not natural in the least bit is fiddling with the clock. Uh, it's, it, it has smacks of the Tower of Babel to me to be messing with the clock. So why don't we never do it again? Is this the last time we're ever going to do a shift, I think, for daily savings? Not yet? There's more? I thought we... Okay. Oh, if the federal... Okay. All right. Well, we can trust them to do the right thing. All right. Let's... So I guess maybe we're not in the clear yet from daylight savings. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on our time. Our triune God, we praise you as the one who has created all things by your will and maintains their existence and whose creativity and wisdom gives everything its beauty and its abundance and its order. You're the God who has created us. You're the God who sustains us. And you're the God who... Even though we've fallen into sin and ruin, you're the God who has saved us, who's given redemption in Jesus Christ. It's through him that we approach you in prayer, asking that you'd grant us the eyes to see the treasures you have for us in your word. We want to understand you better, and in particular, we want to understand your spirit. We want to understand what he's done and what he continues to do, uh, so that we might commune with you with a better sense of who you are and what you are doing. So we pray for alertness, we pray for softness of heart, we pray for clarity of speech for me and for alertness for all of us. We're all, we all just lost an hour of sleep and it can already be tiring to be here uh, early on a Sunday morning. So we pray for your empowerment to pay attention and to be alert and to be shaped and molded into the likeness of Christ as we know that's your will for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. When does the Holy Spirit first enter the Bible's storyline? When does the Holy Spirit show up? Is it Pentecost? Acts 2, we see this dramatic moment where he comes down on the church with tongues of fire. No, it's got to be earlier. What about the baptism of Jesus? Didn't the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remain on Jesus? But... Also, we have to go back earlier and remember we we talked a couple weeks about David praying in Psalm 51 to the Lord after his great sin saying, remove not your Holy Spirit from me. How far back does it go? How far back does the Holy Spirit appear in the Bible's storyline? Well, when we, yeah, does anyone want to answer? I meant it rhetorically, but go for it. I'm sorry, I wasn't sure. No, go, yeah, no, it's fine. That's a very good one. Let us make man our image. I agree with you that there is a Trinitarian hint there. Yes. Jeff? Yeah? Uh, Genesis 1, verse 2. Yeah, so the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters in the second verse of the Bible um, in the creation account, which, as, as I already said, that's what we're talking about today. So the Holy Spirit in creation. When we think about the Holy Spirit, we tend to jump straight into redemption, hopping over creation. We might instinctively think that creation was the Father's business. I talked about this earlier. We might think, oh, the Father is the member of the Trinity who was creating. And then he said, oh, the world got bad in sin. I'm going to give redemption. I'm going to give my son the job to redeem. And then the son is all about redemption. And then he does his work. And then he says, all right, I'm going to tag in the Holy Spirit 
And when I ascend at, at Pentecost, he'll come down and he'll finish things from there. But no, we, we already saw last week that the Trinity does not subdivide like that among the divine works. It's true that the Holy Spirit plays a prominent role in redemption and new creation. And most of the Bible's material about the Holy Spirit does pertain to those things. Redemption and new creation. But new creation is not the start of the Holy Spirit's story in the works of God. And it is actually an irrelevant connection, the old creation and the new creation, because the way the Spirit carries them both out has a lot of parallels. One author writes, When the Holy Spirit comes to renew lost sinners, he does not enter foreign territory, but returns to that which he created. So there's a lot of parallels. Actually, as we study the Spirit as the Creator, we'll see when we later study his work in conversion and in dwelling and the Christian life and even the future, we'll see there's a ton of parallels with creation. Um, so studying his role in creation is valuable for that reason. It, it gives us some initial categories that set a foundation for better understanding and kind of tuning into the Bible's frequency when it describes redemption and new creation, the fruits of Christ's redemption, uh, that creational imagery as the Spirit showing up and doing the same sorts of things. And it's also very practical for our lives to understand the Spirit's role in creation and providence. We'll find that uh, having a robustly biblical vision for the Holy Spirit's activity in the natural world can give us a healthy relationship with our physical environment. It can help us avoid some pitfalls with regard to how we view our relationship with creation. So that's some, some preview of where we're going and why it matters. Any initial questions or thoughts about this? Well, in your handout, you can see we're going to talk first about, um, again, we're going to talk about what's called inseparable operations. Um, Then we're going to talk about creation, and then we're going to talk about providence, and then draw together some implications. Now, we learned about this this fancy term, inseparable operations. We learned about this last week. I didn't use this term last week, uh, and it's okay if you don't really, you know, go, but remember this term. But the idea here is, we talked about last week how the persons of the Trinity carry out the divine works. And we, based on the testimony of scripture, we kind of built a model for understanding how does this all work. And the first thing we need to understand is this adage I gave you, the external works of the Trinity are undivided. Do you remember that? It said the external works of the Trinity are undivided. Everything that God does, all three persons are doing with one will and one power. Um, There's unity in all the divine works. So you start at creation. You, start, you go through providence, the incarnation of Christ, conversion, all these things that God does. Somehow or another, the, the, the triune God is unified in that work. Yet, having said that, we also said there's another side to it, right? This is what we call appropriations. Basically, there are various roles within those divine works that we can, we can distinguish, particularly among the divine persons. We can say, as the triune God in unity is doing this work, there's special way that the Father is taking part, special way the Son is taking part, and a special way that the Spirit is taking part. There are diverse roles within those works. And those roles reflect, now this, this might be a little, I know we, we was this really dense stuff, and we, but does anyone remember, what do those roles reflect? What, um, what is the basis for what the Father is doing in the divine works, what the Son is doing in the divine works? I'll give you a hint. This is also what I said. The only thing that distinguishes the Father from the Son, from the Spirit. What is it? 
Procession. Procession. Very good. So it's not attributes, like not one of them is more loving or one of them is more authoritative or more eternal. No, no, no. They're all share the, the fullness of divine, the, the divine nature. But the thing that distinguishes them is processions. The Son is eternally begotten by the Father, not created. And the Spirit eternally proceeds or spirates, which means breathed out by the Father and the Son. And so because of that order, Father, Son, Spirit, that is the order in which they carry out the divine works. The Father originates, the Son mediates, and the Holy Spirit perfects. Whereas we we saw in the language of Scripture as it's echoed in the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, the Spirit is called the the giver of life. He's the Lord and giver of life. And that comes right out of John 6.63. It is the Spirit who gives life, he says. That's kind of the, the big overall thing we see. And all the Spirit does, you can kind of say perfecting and life-giving is sort of the, 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 the big picture label we could put over all that the Spirit is doing in the divine works. So that's what we did last week. And we said, so that's, again, based on Scripture, but we kind of put Scripture together. We, we, we said this is the model for how we understand God's works. Now we want to ask the question this week about natural creation, God's creation and ongoing providential care of nature. God's creating our world, preserving it, and governing it. Now, so that means we're not talking about redemption yet. We're not talking about how he saves sinners. We're talking about his relationship kind of um, undistinguished among the wicked and the, and the, the, the righteous. It's just his kind of blanket relationship with the world. What is the Holy Spirit's role in these works? Now, based on what we learned last week, we would expect to find the Father to have an originating role, the Son to have a mediating role, and for the Holy Spirit to have a completing or perfecting role. As one theologian, Michael Horton, puts it, creation is, quote, the Father speaking in the Son and bringing the effect of that speech to fruition through the agency of the Spirit. The Father speaking in the Son and bringing the effect of that speech to fruition through the agency of the Spirit. End quote. Now, as we look at Scripture in more detail today, we're going to ask, does, does that prove true? Is that what we find in Scripture? Well, one initial observation that we can make is that in various places, the Bible attributes creation to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. So, would someone be willing to read Acts 4.24 for us? So, I need three volunteers right now. Acts 4.24... John 1.3, and Job 33.4. So Matt Boyd, you got uh, Acts 4.24. Uh, Josh DeYoung, John 1.3, and Tom, you got uh, Job 33.4. This is Acts 4.24. They're praying. The, the church is praying. They've been persecuted, and now they're going. They're gathering together to pray to the Lord for boldness. Mm-hmm. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Can we keep going? Um, no, but he, I think it's like the next verse. It says, Who said by the Holy Spirit? Yeah. And quotes a psalm, I believe. Yeah. So uh, this is the Sovereign Lord. They, they're saying they're addressing the Father, who said by the Holy Spirit. He said, You're the one who created everything, the heavens and the earth. Um, what about John 1 3? All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being 
that has come into being. Yeah, and of course, context is helpful for us there, as always. Mm-hmm. Who's the he? We're just right in the middle of a discussion there. The Word, who was in the beginning with God, and in the beginning was God. And then in verse 3, all things were made through Him. Which, by the way, that's how you can prove that He's not created. All things that are created were created through the Word. So when anyone comes to your door and tries to tell you that the Son is created, just for John 1, 3. Everything created came to being through the Son. So the, the Son is, in, is the Creator as well. Um, what about Job 33, 4? Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Okay, so this is uh, Eli who's speaking. The, the, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So he says, the Spirit of God made me. He's, he's attributed with creation. But um, So there's at least three data points that, that show all three persons, um, in one sense, being the creator. But we can go into a little more detail as we look at the creation account itself and, and see how this looks. So let's, let's turn there. We'll look at creation. Any questions about just, we're kind of, again, we're kind of reviewing the territory of the divine works, unity, but also appropriate roles within divine works. Any questions or things to clarify there as we review that point? All right, let's talk about the creation account. So we're going to camp out in Genesis 1 for a little bit. I'll read Genesis 1, verses 1 to 3. And remember that the Michael Horton quote, we have the, he said, we have the Father speaking in the Son and bringing about the effects through the Spirit. Let's see if, let's see if he's right. Um, Genesis 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And on the account goes. So in, in verse 1, God creates everything, heaven and earth. And then in verse 2, we see the condition of what God made. What is the condition of everything God made in verse 2? Formless and void. It's a dark, chaotic mass of matter. And then verse 2 tells us about the Spirit of God. What is He doing? He's hovering. That's interesting. That's bird imagery. Hovering like a bird. We'll talk in a moment about what that means. Hovering over the face of the waters. And then from then, so that's the initial scene. God creates and it looks dark and watery and the spirit is hovering. And then what happens? What, what, where does the story go from there? God starts doing what? Speaking. And then what happens as, as God starts speaking? And you know you've probably read the whole chapter at some point. You've been... I know Gary has. What happens when God starts speaking? Creation, okay? Creation starts happening. Now, we might mis- one way we might misunderstand the creation account, it took me a long time to realize this. I always would have said, in the creation account, every day God makes a new thing. Six days, on day one he makes one thing, on day two he makes another thing, on day three he makes another thing. That's actually not quite what happens. What happens actually is at the start, he makes the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but it was all mixed up and wet and dark. So for the first three days, so, so we need to understand this. Um, it's all there, but it's incomplete. It's not bad, but it's imperfect. And the two imperfections it has are formlessness, meaning it's disorganized. It doesn't have form. And it's void, meaning it's empty. It is disorganized and empty. It's not bad, it's just not done yet. So, 
Over the course of the next six days, he speaks and he fills out both of these imperfections. He speaks. In the first three days, he solves the issue of formlessness by giving form to the unformed matter. So the first three days are all about separation. Let, he, he says, let there be light. And then he separated light from darkness, verse 4. And you see these first three days, light and dark are separated. The, the, the waters above separated from the waters below. Then the waters below are separated because of land. There's separation. There's organization happening. And what was formless is taking form. And then the, the fourth through sixth days, he solves the imperfection of void, of emptiness, by doing what? What does he do in those last three days? He has ordered the creation. What does he then do? He fills it with what? With life, with inhabitants, which what chapter 2 verse 1 calls the hosts. He summarizes, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. The hosts, it's like armies. The population of the heavens and the earth. It's the stars and the sun and the moon in, in the heavens. It's the birds, it's the fish, it's the plants and the animal life on earth. He makes it not void. He fills it with life after having organized and formed it. So what does the Holy Spirit have to do with all this? Return to verse 2, this word hover. This, this picture is a bird hovering over its young. And this appears also, uh, I think, I, I don't know if I have the cross-reference, Deuteronomy 32.11. We won't look there together, but it's actually used um, poetically as a description of the Lord's care, his exodus redemption of Israel. This is one of those things where exodus or like redemption terminology starts echoing creation terminology where he says he hovered over them like an eagle over this formless waste, you know, in in terms of his care for Israel. Um, But the idea is a bird hovering over its young, ready to nurture, ready to care. And that's the the image of this, uh, this hovering. This notion, as one author says, it underscores the work of the spirit in turning an original space that is formless and empty into a place formed and full, a hospitable place for the plant world, animal kingdom, and as the crown of creation, what's the crown of creation? Finish the quote. (laughs) Man, the human race, exactly. So even though the spirit doesn't receive any more explicit mention after verse 2, there's no more mentions of the Holy Spirit. You're right, though, about let us make man in our image, verse 26. I, I, I agree, and many interpreters throughout church history have agreed that, that that is a Trinitarian hint. It's not explicit yet. But there's no more mention of the Spirit in this account. But we saw him poised for action, ready to care, ready to nurture, ready to give life at the beginning. And then the works that flow from that are what? God speaking order and fullness into this unformed and empty mass and bringing about these perfecting and life-giving effects. That's how God created and you notice, I, I asked you to be alert to the, the, the three persons, and we, we read verses 1 to 3. All three persons, at least in a, at least in a hint, hinted form, are there in the first three verses. God created the heavens and the earth. The Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters, and then God spoke. We have the Word of God. Now, if you are just opening up the Bible at Genesis 1 and reading, you have no idea that the speech of God is a person, right? That becomes clear much later on in the Bible storyline. In like John 1.1, 1, 1, where the word of God is a person. It's the son, the eternal son. But you have, you have this echoed in Psalm 33.6. Would someone be willing to read Psalm 33.6? Yeah, Tom. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. 
By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. So you have the Lord, you have his word, which John says is, is a he <laughs> who created all things. And then you have the breath of his mouth, which correlating that with Genesis 1-2, the spirit hovering is the spirit of God. God creating by his word, by his spirit, which is a Trinitarian action. So all of the perfecting of creation that we see in six days, all of this forming and filling comes to its full effect through the Holy Spirit. Uh, John Owen writes about the spirit, this, this work of carrying this unformed mass. He says, carrying it toward that form, order, beauty, and perfection that it was designed unto. So in the mind of God, there's this plan of creation, and the Spirit is the one who brings that to perfection, brings it to completion. How do we know by the end of the creation account that it worked, that it ended up what God wanted it to be? Yeah, he keeps saying this punctuated as he creates. He saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. And then what's the, the, the climax of that progression? In verse 31 of chapter 1, he saw that it was very good. He's done, and he says it's very good. Then he rests. So that's the signature of the Holy Spirit. There's this chaotic and an empty creation. Add to that the hovering of the Spirit. And what does it yield? Order and beauty and abundance. A very good creation. Now I want us to notice one more thing about the, the actual dynamics of how creation happens as we look at the account in Genesis 1. Um, and that is there's actually two different ways God declares, you know, he speaks creation into being. There's two different ways he does this. It's very interesting to see. The first one is a direct, we could call it fiat, just a direct declaration, like verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. He just said, let it it happen, and it happens. Uh, But there's another, as you read the the, the account as it progresses, there's another kind of declaration that God makes. Would someone read verses 11 and 12? Mm-hmm. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. Earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Good. Same thing in verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. And it was so. How's that different than verse 3? In verse 3, he says, let there be. What does he say in verse 11, verse 24? Is he, is he simply directly saying, let this thing come into existence? He's, he's uh, directing the command at something. Yeah, at what? He's directing the command yeah. at something. Yeah, at what? At the earth. At the earth. Yeah. He's, he is declaring that the earth would generate more life, right? So he is speaking fruitfulness into creation. Now, which of these is fulfilled? Both of these are fulfilled. It was so. Which of them is creative act of God? Both, yeah. (laughs) It's a bit of a trick question. They're both creative acts of God. To say, just straight up, let there be, and it is. He can call into existence things that don't exist. But he can also speak to what he made and start telling it to produce and that's creation as well. And so he can speak fruitfulness and abundance and, and kind of an abundance generating qualities.
quality into creation itself. One theologian writes, The earth's ability to produce comes from the creative activity of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, his work to fructify the creation, that means to make it fruitful. That's a great word. His word to fructify the creation, that is to render it productive in accordance with its divine design. The Spirit hovers, and part of what that means is, sometimes the Lord directly makes things, or directly says, let, this, let these things be ordered, and it was so. And sometimes he says, let this thing I already made makes, bring forth something else. And, and so it is. And well, this, this observation is important because it kind of anticipates what we're going to see with providence. This kind of thing is happening in the world all the time. And we're going to see the Holy Spirit's relationship to providence there um, as a very similar action. But for now, before we start talking about the breathing life into the soul in 2.7, any questions about this creation account of, of Genesis 1 and the Spirit's role? Or thoughts, observations? Yeah, Gary. Like something you did, Dr. Henry Morris, who's a, who was, you know, was a creation scientist, mm-hmm. acts the father of, say, modern creationism, but he pictures it, the, the Spirit hovering, mm-hmm. And the word hover uh, in in the Hebrew, according mm-hmm. to what I read, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to sound like I'm some kind of intellectual. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but that it that it pictures vibration or oscillation. Mm-hmm. So the picture that say perhaps we could relate the the spiritual component, but we can also relate the the. Uh, Science in it mm-hmm. that it's a picture of the Holy Spirit putting in the electromagnetic spectrum, mm. gravity, strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force. So now we get vibration, we get movement. Now, mm-hmm. once we have movement, then we have time, we have all these things. Yeah, interesting. So, so scientifically, that's a pretty correct picture because the, the Hebrew word is kind of vibrating. Flutter, yeah. Well. So it's, it yeah. just adds. Yeah, yeah. For for someone like me, it's yeah, yeah. a little bit more if, into the story of the spirit. And yeah, if you, yeah. So if you're if you understand these natural forces that Gary mentioned, they they're 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 waves, right? They run their wave patterns. Yeah, yeah. And it's possible, and you know, we don't really dogmatically know, but it's possible. It is interesting that it is the, the word for hover. There's a sense of fluttering or or vibrating. I think in Deuteronomy thirty two eleven, it's translated in the ESV as flutters. An eagle flutters over its it's young, and, and when you see a bird hovering, it is doing that. There's this kind of twitchy, kind of it's like riding the, riding the thermals, you know, trying to stay steady. And so there may be even the sense in which there's a, and there's the spirit kind of infused, uh, yeah, these things into creation. That's, that's possible, yeah. Um, yeah, it's an interesting thought. Well, see, then it, in a sense, see, so then you picture once the molecules have their electromagnetic, you know, their positive and negative and all this, then it forms water, mm-hmm. naturally forms a ball. Mm. And so then you picture, okay, the spirit hovers, and now all this unformed mass mm-hmm. of, say, hydrogen, oxygen, mm-hmm. forms H2O, and then it becomes, so then you picture this globe of water mm-hmm. on that very first day you have then he's over the surface of the water. Hmm. So it so it energizes scientifically the the, the right, right. globular formation of yeah. planet Earth. And yeah. So you can kind of picture uh, you know by day two you have this ball of water just mm-hmm. out in out in space. Yeah yeah. 
and, uh, and then, have, then the next day you have the separation of the waters, mm -hmm. and so all kind of can can be scientifically yeah, yeah. as well. What's interesting is to just realize that this the the God, yeah, and we're kind of getting get into this, but God and nature aren't too. You know, we need to always distinguish God from nature, but never separate them. God is working in nature to make it do what it does, and and some of these ideas about how that is is is, is very interesting. And but what's really important is to recognize that something like that is happening. That God, it, by the, the triune action of creating, is causing nature to be what it is. Uh, so that's that's some really interesting thoughts about how that might look. Um, any other thoughts about this creation account? Yeah, exactly. just real quick. In my Bible, spirit is capitalized. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Because right? the translators think it refers to the Holy Spirit. Okay, so it's not. <laughs> there's not something in the no. language itself. What's tricky is in the in the Hebrew and Greek, the word spirit is the same word for breath and wind, in both languages. So it's always. This is just one of the hazards of translating the Bible, and even the hazards of using capital letters for divine like pronouns and titles is that you start having to make interpretive choices. I think it's a good one, but it's just realize there is, there is, there is interpretive decision behind that, yeah. And uh, if you're a translator of the Bible and you are, you're committed to capitalizing divine references to spirit and lowercasing non-divine references, then it's on you to sort them all out, right? <laughs> right, so um, yeah, good question. Um, Let's talk about Genesis 2.7. Um, not only does the Holy Spirit perfect the whole creation, but there's a particular aspect of his work that comes to the fore in chapter 2. It's the creation of man. Would someone read uh, Genesis 2.7? So Genesis 1 is like the overall picture of the creation, the kind of global view. And then 2.7 is like focuses in on the man in the garden. It's kind of a more local view. So is it Laura, would you be willing to read Genesis 2.7, please? Did the Lord form the man of death from the ground and breathe into his Thank you. So what two ingredients go into the creation of man? Dust and breath. Dust and breath. And what's the result? Life. It becomes a living creature. Now the word creature, it, it might not be the best translation. This word is often translated soul. And the old King James translates this word soul. Man became a living soul. And uh, actually, this is echoed in 1 Corinthians 15.45. The first Adam became a living. And I don't know what the ESV uses in, for the Greek there, but it, I think it's like a living being or creature too. But that Greek word is often translated soul. It's probably the, best that both, both of them are translated a living soul, which again, King James does in both cases. Um, this is not an account of how man became a living creature merely. Um, there is, there's nothing special about being a living creature with regard to the creation. We already saw how he creates animals. Um, there's nothing, it's, the focus of verse 7, the big wow thing about verse 7 is not that we breathe and live in a merely physical sense. All the animals do that. The, the, the spotlight is being shown on the man because of the special way he was created. And the special thing man has is the breath of life. And he became a living Soul. That's what it seems like in the context. Soul is a better rendering here than creature, than merely a living animal like that. Uh, so again, Owen writes, uh, God breathes into man's matter the breath of life. So he says this, as giving, something, as giving him something of himself, somewhat immediately of his own, 
not made out of any procreated matter. This is the rational soul or intelligent spirit. Thus man became a middle creature between the angels above and the sensitive animals below. End quote. So man is partly made of material from creation, right? We have a physical body that is continuous with material creation, but there's another part of us, right? God breathes something that's not from preformed materials in creation. It's something new. It's the breath of life, and, and it's what makes us a living soul. Um, to correlate it with what he said back in, um, back in chapter 1, verse 26, let us make man in our image... This is part of what it means to be made in God's image. Uh, to be made immortal creatures. None of the animals are immortal creatures. And to be made able to relate to God and to know him and to live for him. None of the animals were made for that purpose. So we have something very distinct. And that is what the Genesis 2 account calls the breath of life. And now what does the Holy Spirit have to do with this? Well, it's always really tricky. And this kind of brings up what Zach was asking about the word spirit. As I said, the word spirit is the same word for wind and breath. But it's no accident that the words overlap like that because the, often the, the wind breath usage is metaphorical for the spirit and his activity. Um, and I, I think that we, what we saw at Job 33, 4 is a really helpful clarifier, if we could say that, of what is going on in Genesis 2, 7. Tom, you read that earlier. Would you be able to read, read again uh, Job 33, 4? So the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So uh, correlating that with Genesis 27, the breath of the Almighty has given me the breath of life. Seems to be the idea there. So the Spirit's presence is what makes a human soul what it is. The image of God makes us immortal, rational, and able to know God. Now, we're not talking yet about indwelling. We're not talking about redemption yet. We're not talking about the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost and filling the, the, the church that's distinct. That's something else. It's, it's wonderful. But we're just talking about his, his presence in the world, in creation and providence, in making the human soul what it is. So any questions about that or, or thoughts about that? The spirit is the, the one who generates human soul. Yeah, Josh. Um, maybe a different conversation, but does this play into like whether how we interpret or should we think of man as more like a dualistic like a body and spirit or there's also like a tripartite yeah body spirit? that's a good question there there has been debate theologically over how many parts the human the human being has two or three some have said there are some texts of scripture that seem to be saying body soul and spirit and some that seem to have two parts body and soul which is the soul and spirit would be kind of synonyms for the same thing I think there's better evidence for that latter. And I think actually this is probably a very good reference for that, for the two parts. There's a, there's a material and an immaterial part. And though we're a unified being, there are these distinct parts. That's why when our bodies die, our, there's a part of us that's still very much us that, that continues to exist. And of course, not, it won't always be that way. We get a resurrected body, we'll be reunited. But yeah, I think this is actually a helpful text for that discussion that uh, you see at the very basic level, there's a material part and an immaterial part, and that's what makes us a living soul. But what's interesting, too, is we, 
Sometimes we say the soul is that immaterial part of us, but the, the language of Genesis 2-7 and 1 Corinthians 15-45 is man became a living soul. So it's been said, you don't have a soul, you are a soul. <laughs> By virtue of this immaterial component we have, which we also often call the soul. It's kind of confusing. You could call it the spirit as well. Yeah. Do you think at the moment of conception then, when a baby is conceived, then that's the yeah, I think so. When, when does that soul start to exist? I believe it's the moment of conception. And, I, you know, the mystery of what exactly, you know, when exactly and how. Boy, be honest. But, yeah, the, the, the Bible certainly treats the unborn as a living human soul. And so I don't know of any good place to begin recognizing that than the moment of what, I know yeah, conception. There's always immortal souls. And then the oh, yeah, yeah. I think that's false. Right, right. It is interesting that, well, another thing is that when God says, let the creatures, let the earth produce creatures, it's kind of like they're out of the dust too. Mm-hmm. God actually forms the man with the dust. Yeah. A little more intimacy. Yeah. Than just let the, have, let the animals appear. Yeah. But form the man. Yeah, that's a good distinction. Yeah, there's some, there's overlap, there's similarity with the animals, but there's something transcendent that we have. That's very different, and I think the breath of life is the way the Bible's way of summarizing that. Yeah, just it's interesting. You hear God saying, "Let's make them like me," and then He does this. He breathes this this breath of life. Yeah, Paul. I got an uh, observation with the gentleman said over there about the capitalization of spirit. When you go back to Job thirty-three four, yeah, they did. If they didn't capitalize that, there yeah. was some kind of confusion in the reader because I noticed. New American Standard uh-huh. and ES. New American Standard always capitalizes, uh-huh. but New American Standard I know sometimes doesn't. New the, the ESV doesn't do ESV. yeah the ESV doesn't do pronouns like he's and him's, but I think titles it does. So it's using it's recognizing spirit as a title, and and so like Lord or Spirit or Son of like Son of Man things like that would be capitalized, but um, he and you know those pronouns wouldn't yeah. So if this particular, so ESV doesn't capitalize spirit in 33-4? I think it does. It does? I don't yeah. know if sure it did or not. Yeah, because it's treating it like a title. Okay. Yeah. So you're, but, saying, pro, you're saying pronouns. I'm saying pro, I mean, it's true of both, really. I mean, all tra- I think all translations that I know of would capitalize these titles like spirit or lord or son. But um, they differ, and and... The capitalizing pronouns thing is actually very recent. So some people think, like, that's the way it's always been. It's not the way it's always been. It's a pretty recent thing. Um, and some people like it, and that's fine. But it does create, it puts, some, it puts the keys in the hands of, of translators that you just have to be thoughtful about. You know, they're, they're suddenly it's on them to make certain decisions. That, I mean, if you want to be really purist, you could not capitalize anything except a name, right? And say, like, let's just let people figure it out based on the context. But none of us want to see, like, God in lowercase. <laughs> like, that would bother us too much. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's for translation. You can't translate without making some interpretive decision. So you just have to know what, what, what they're doing. Um, let's talk about providence now so we have creation let's talk about providence we've seen that the Holy Spirit is the perfecting agent of the train God's original creation is he done is he like okay I did it I'm going to just wait for Pentecost <laughs> no it's still not over um, his presence perfected our world and filled it with life he breathed life into every human being making us an immortal soul in the image of God so that's the beginning of created world what is he doing now 
And that's what brings up the question of providence. And the first thing we need to talk about is providence as its relationship to creation. There's a very organic relationship between creation and providence because providence is simply defined as God's preservation and government of the creation. He preserves it, meaning he keeps it, go- he keeps it going, keeps it from falling apart, and he governs it, meaning he steers. He's not just neutrally keeping it what it is. He's steering it. He's causing the things in it to happen that happen. And that includes, by the way, so everything that happens is part of God's providence, including things that happen through secondary, what we might call secondary causation. So we might say, if I drop my book on the floor, and then I say, God's providence caused my book to fall on the floor, you might say, that's, that's ridiculous. Gravity caused your book to fall, or your decision to drop your book caused it to fall, not providence. Well, that, that, um, that is a false dilemma. God's providence includes the laws of nature, the decisions of morally responsible creatures. It's all part of God's overarching sovereign providence, his government of, of all things he made. So it's really, it's the continuation of the beginning work of creation. He created on that first week. What did he say? We saw chapter 131 of Genesis. He saw that it was very good. Very good. And then you know what God does? He takes his very good creation and he, he nurtures it. He keeps it going. He continues to approve of it and delight in it even though it's fallen into sin. And the Holy Spirit remains involved in this work of preservation. He didn't desert the creation after it was finished, but it's actually by his particular operations that he preserves, as Owen says, he preserves and continues all things. So let's talk about that. So any quick questions? Uh, I should say, we went really quickly over what providence is and how it relates to creation. Any questions or thoughts about that? Are we clear what, what providence is? It's not just a city in Rhode Island. It was named, as <laughs> a city in Rhode Island named after the doctrine of providence by the old Puritans. So let's talk about how the Holy Spirit provides and governs. Our key texts, there's, there, there are a number of texts that play into this doctrinal area, but one that's really key, and we should probably all turn there, is Psalm 104, and especially looking at verses 27 to 30. Would someone be willing to read all that? Psalm 104, verses 27 to 30. And let me just say, he has just talked about all this diverse plant and animal life and how God supplies their needs. And then that's where we pick up in 27. Yeah, Paul. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. You give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good. You hide your face, they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Thank you. So God is the provider for all his creatures. When they have breath, when we, I say we, when we have breath, it's because he's giving us breath. And when we lack breath, it's because he withdrew it. So that's verse 29 uh, is saying. You hide your face, they're dismayed. You take away their breath, they die. And then verse 30, you send forth your spirit, you're created. Renew the face of the ground. Okay, where do we see the Holy Spirit here? Don't worry about it. We can start with an obvious answer. That's fine. <laughs> Don't worry about the, uh, giving the obvious answer. Someone has to say. 
Verse 30, you send forth your spirit, they are created. Which, um, verse 28, though, is interesting. Because he says, you, uh, when you take away their breath, they die. Um, so there, it's their breath. That's probably why the translators said breath and not spirit. You wouldn't say their Holy Spirit. But would, would the spirit not be maybe implied there or, or alluded to there where you take away their breath, they die. Your, you, you, your Holy Spirit, you send your spirit, they have life. So the idea maybe that the Holy Spirit is the sustainer of their breath. If we can maybe put 28 and, or 29 and 30 together. The Holy Spirit is the source of the breath that all the creatures have. And he's the source of the life they have. When he is sent forth, life and creation and renewal happens. And, and in one sense, when he's withdrawn, death happens. Uh, this creating, now we might look at verse 30 and say they're created. Oh, are we talking about creation again? Well, this is not the original creation. In the context of Psalm 104, he's not talking about day one. <laughs> Days one through six, original creation. He's talking about um, carrying forth uh, life-giving by means of the creation itself. Remember how we saw that? Let the earth bring forth, and the earth was able to bring forth. Um, and so I, what I, I would correlate this text and all what Psalm 104 is saying with that. God breathing into the creation the generative capability to keep springing forth new life. And the Spirit is still involved in creation causing it to do that. And we see this every spring, right? The earth, it's almost like there's this resurrection from the dead. There's a winter, is like this death the earth kind of goes through. And every spring there's like this resurrection from the dead and suddenly the, the plants are blooming. It's kind of, it's mysterious, it's kind of crazy that these trees look dead. And every spring when it warms up, they suddenly they're alive again. Now we know they're not dead. And, uh, but there is this sense in which God has built into them the capacity to regenerate life, to, to start budding and blossoming. And all the animals start having their young in the spring. We're, we're almost to that time. The Holy Spirit is breathing life into nature and fructifying it. This isn't just nature happening. We're going to talk about this in a moment. This is not just God wound the nature clock and let it go. The Holy Spirit is breathing life into nature and causing life to renew itself. Now, this, is, this text is about kind of the natural world, animal, plant life. But there's other aspects of providence that we can understand that the Spirit's involved with as well. Part of it is man, the activity of man our relational and moral functions. So uh, we won't look there, but there's places where the Spirit is credited with giving rulers the ability to rule. Um, judges, uh, there's a couple of references in Judges. The Spirit gives leaders wisdom, the ability to rule virtuously. It's interesting. Now, now um, some of these are about Israel's rulers, and we're going to talk in a moment about, well, does that count? Is that providence when the Spirit gives Israel's rulers the ability to rule? We'll talk about it. It is, it is. But one thing that's very clear is if, if you're familiar with Isaiah 45.1, when God is talking about Cyrus, the pagan Persian emperor, who's going to be a key part. Anyone know the Bible story? What does Cyrus do? He's important. He's talking, uh, Isaiah's prophesying to the exiles before exile. What's Cyrus going to do? Yes, he, he sends him back from exile. And what does God call him in, in Isaiah 45.1? To, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. And anointing is this picture of, well, off, it, often in the Bible is tied to the Spirit, this, this special gifting of the Spirit for, for God's work. So he calls this pagan king his anointed one. 
He is supplied with the Spirit to do a certain task. So, the Spirit is working in the minds, hearts, and counsels of man, of human rulers in our decision-making. We, we see this in general. It's not usually spe- specified as the Holy Spirit, but you have, like, the, I think it's Proverbs, uh, is it 16.9, the the the. the the kings of the Lord holds the king's hearts in his hand and turns it like streams of water wherever he wishes. Uh, is that sixteen nine? Pardon me, I don't have the reference on that. But uh, the Lord rules the heart, including the hearts of rulers, and we see um, pictures of the Spirit involved in this as well. Of course, like all the divine works, you don't subdivide the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Um, you have Joshua enabled to rule by the Spirit in Deuteronomy 34, 9. Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the Spirit of wisdom. And then in Exodus 31, we hear of these two craftsmen, uh, Bezalel and Aholiab, who are filled with the Spirit and with skill to do what? What are these guys supposed to do? Supposed to make something. Arts and crafts, Arts and crafts yeah. It's not construction paper and felt, though. It, it's skilled work. Arts and crafts to make the, temp- the tabernacle. So he says, um, the Lord said to Moses, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of uh, Uri, um, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence and knowledge and all craftsmanship. And so I have filled him with the spirit, with skill and knowledge to do this thing so he can make this beautiful tabernacle. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute, I already alluded to this. Leaders like Bezalel and Aholiab and Joshua were part of Israel. They were part of God's covenant community. Wouldn't the Holy Spirit's influence on them count as special grace, more of a redemptive thing, not, not providence? And that is a distinction that matters. We talk about providence. We're not talking about God's work in kind of the redemptive storyline and the redemptive covenant work among his people. We're talking about his just broadly distributed work in the world. That's true. He is working in this case among his covenant people. But look, the skills he's giving are ordinary skills. That's kind of the point here. He is not supernaturally zapping them with miraculous abilities. He didn't... uh, Now, he does do miracles in the Exodus, for sure. But this isn't one of them. He's saying the Spirit has given what was, in itself, a pretty natural capacity. This skill to make beautiful, artistic things. Um, Many artisans throughout the history of the world have abilities like this. To make beautiful things. uh, Craftsmanship, knowledge, intelligence... So it's not a miracle that they had to skill to make the tabernacle, but it was a providential appointment of the Holy Spirit. And that's what kind of we're keying into here is the Spirit does things like that. He distributes ability and skill among people. And it was a wonderful providence that he embedded these two men among Israel with the abilities to do this. It's possible that they learned it in Egypt. I heard someone bring that up recently. They must have learned this in Egypt. Well, that's not inconsistent with the doctrine of providence, is it? That... um, there's nothing in the text saying that God gave it to them isolated from any natural human influences, the ways that people learn how to do things. But it's still the Spirit infusing that ability into them. So, the Spirit is doing that all over. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting discussion. Like you said, like you're distinguishing. There's when we talk about spiritual gifts later. There's going to be an interesting question to ask: spiritual gifts and natural gifts. And I, I think you're right that they're not the same. Spiritual gifts are something above uh, natural gifts, but the natural gifts do matter, and they exist among us as God's people. And you see that there's people that use their natural gifts, which are gifts of God, still in service of one another. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the Spirit's role, uh, how, the, how understanding the Spirit's role in providence can help us avoid some pitfalls in our theology. So th- this helps us understand how uh, Christian, Christian theology, the, the Bible's teaching on the Spirit, is distinct from the over-eminence of pantheism. And I have a little parenthesis, panentheism. These are big words we'll explain in a moment. The over-transcendence of deism. So let's break down some of these terms. God's transcendence is his otherness, his being above the creation. And then what is his imminence? It's the opposite. What's his imminence? His nearness. Now, whenever one, the Bible teaches both. And what's tricky is whenever one of them gets dialed up to overshadowing the other, you end up with disaster, theological disaster. So, um, in the first place... As we've seen, the Holy Spirit is near and active throughout the natural world. Whenever a bee visits a flower and gets a little bit of nectar and it pollinates a flower with whatever it stepped on last time and uh, takes the nectar off to the hive to make a little bit of honey, the Holy Spirit is there. He's providing, he's guiding, he's empowering as, the, as an overflow of the gift of life. Um, but what happens when we... Um, neglect God's imminence or his nearness to creation? What if all we have is, the, is God is transcendent? He's over, he's above, he's different, and we neglect the idea that he's close. You end up with the theology called deism. And deism is, it was really popular in the 18th century. Uh, it's not so popular now, but it's around for sure. Um, it's the idea of God as a watchmaker who just creates this wonderful world. He winds it up and he lets it go just to carry out its own processes. And as the, the Enlightenment, people were discovering natural laws and they were all excited about science. They were going, wow, this stuff just kind of works on its own. It's nature. We don't need God to run everything. We don't need providential explanations. We have the laws of gravity and, and things like that. Well, what deists are doing is they're confusing these two categories and saying that nature is just running itself. Now, they're right. How are deists correct? We was like, what is right about the deists? If they see nature as like, oh, well, nature generates itself. There's seeds. There's a potential for life built into life. How are they right? Yeah, Matt. Yeah, there are laws. There is continuity in creation. That's not false. Remember that let the earth bring forth language in Genesis 1. God made the earth able to let itself bring things forth. But where do they go wrong? Right, so, so that continuation of, of creation's kind of natural generative capability is a godless process. God is not involved intimately in that process. That's where they go wrong. They see these phenomena, genetics and gravity, and they say, ah, the world is running by itself. The Bible looks at these natural processes and it peels back the curtain and shows us, like in Psalm 104, the Holy Spirit giving life, withdrawing life, uh, governing all of these things. He's ever-present, working, and providing and guiding. Okay, so we, we can rule out deism. Okay, so no, no, we don't want this distant God who's uninvolved. But then let's say, imagine a scenario, a relatively, I'm getting this from, a, a, I'm quoting this from a, a, a book, a scenario someone laid out. A relatively new Christian says to you, I've been reading a book lately, 
that is making me wonder if the Holy Spirit is the life and energy of the cosmos. If the Holy Spirit is the life and energy of the, the creation, heaven and earth. Evaluate that statement. Are you excited about that? The Holy Spirit is the life and energy of the cosmos. Are we up against any problems here? Any, any thoughts? Now, maybe I'm, let's see if I'm, but I, I think of Colossians 1, mm-hmm. 16 and 17, I don't know, but it says, in 17, he says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Yeah, so in Christ in all things sense, hold together. He's yeah. got to be in everything. He is, he yeah. He has to hold it together, so I'm not sure if that's yeah, yeah. So what you're referring to. But you're, there's a, there's very, that's very true, he is... All, before all things, all things are holding together. In Him, in is a good word for that. Yeah, John. Uh, I was, I was just thinking. I'm trying to find because it, it sounds weird to me, and I'm trying to find the yeah. line where I understand why. And it almost sounds like it's drifting into was it animism, where mm-hmm. the yeah. uh, the things themselves are God, and yes. not that God. Is. Yes, exactly. So animism. Exactly. So here's what we're the problem we're getting into. The flip side of deism. Deism dials up transcendence, dials down eminence. The flip side is when you everything's eminence, you lose transcendence, and you start blurring the the creator creature distinction, and you make God and God and the natural order continuous in terms of their their being, and 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 um, that's where you end up with. So pantheism means everything is God. The idea that God and nature are exactly the same thing. And then you also have panentheism, and n, n just means in. So everything is in God, or everything is a part of God's being. Um, and, and the distinction between them isn't super important for us now. But just basically the idea, what they're both doing is they're teaching, they're dissolving that crucial distinction between the create, creature and the creator. And they're kind of saying, well, where does God begin and the creation ends? It's kind of like, who's to say, Right. Um, that's a fatal theological error as well. The Bible's teaching about the Holy Spirit guards against this. Even, yeah, Paul. Would you talk about, what you say about pantheism? Because I've heard commentators speak of pantheism in a negative light. Oh, yes, I'm thinking, speaking about it. What do you say about, what you say pantheism? Everything is God. And that's necessarily a negative. That's absolutely negative, Yeah. And we'll talk, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Deism is one problem when God is so far above and not involved in creation. The other problem is when you, God is only near and not above and different, that you start turning creation into God or at least part of God. And that's what John mentioned, animists think this way. Yeah. So you were talking about the 18th century, correct? And that's the founding fathers. Were Deism was big, was, was popular in that, yeah, in light of the era. God was over everything, but yeah. God wasn't near. Yes. And this pan- pantheism has come, cropped up all over the place, but all the kind of pagan traditional religions are basically pantheists. All the rival religions in the Bible times, they were, they were some form of this, this kind of pagan continuity between divine and, and the natural. It's very popular still today. Yes. But it has different terms, like yes. Star Wars and the Force. Yes, and? The force is everything, and it yes. controls everything, or whatever. Right, so the Force is a, is a pop culture... Uh, 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 version of this. Another current, uh, another current popular uh, manifestation of this is evolutionary theory. Yeah. 
Because what evolutionary theory, now, naturalists think, no, 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 we're not, we're not theists at all. We don't count, we're not part of this discussion. But think about it. The creative life force is eminent to the natural order. It is the natural order. It's the, it's the, the, um, the mutations and the natural uh, processes of life passing itself on. They say it's time and chance and mutation. And it, if that's what we have, what we have today. Look at this amazing uh, kind of creation of time and chance and mutation. That is a form of pantheism. They wouldn't say it's God, but it's functioning entirely like God. The creative force is just baked into the nature itself. So moderns, this is the thing, we become more secular and we think we're moving beyond theism, but we're actually just devolving back into pre-Christian paganism. That's what's happening in our society. Um, how do we know that the Bible speaks against pantheism, panentheism? And specifically the Holy Spirit. Well, one, one big clue is in his name, holy. <laughs> it's in his name. Holy, what does holy mean? Set apart. He is other. So his transcendence and his otherness than nature uh, is part of his name. You see it also taught in the Bible. Um, in Psalm 139, 7 to 8, uh, David is saying, Where shall I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? So this is about the omnipresence of God and the spirit of God and God. Same. If I ascend to heaven, you are there, and etc. If I go down to the depths, you're there. He's saying, everywhere I go, you're there. But you see, he's not, he isn't creation. He's near creation. He's not saying, you are the heights, you are the depths. He's saying, if I go there, there you are. You're, you're immediately near me everywhere, but you're not everywhere. You're, you're, you don't equal everywhere. So that distinction is really important in regard to how, just our understanding of God but in particular, as we're talking about this Holy, the Holy Spirit and providence. Paul says when he's preaching in Acts 17, he, God, is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. In him. We are in him. We are not far from him, but he isn't us. He isn't the created order. That distinction is crucial. Any questions or thoughts about So this is like big worldview stuff, right? Just helping think through how the Bible helps us uh, and the implications can be manifold with regard to how we view the world, how we discern error, um, different systems of thought. Any, any questions or thoughts about these issues of the, kind of this part, part C, I think it was, about how, how the doctrine of the spirit in creation and providence guards us against deism and pantheism. You may not have walked in this morning thinking, I need to, I need to know how to, I need to know, I need protection from pantheism. <laughs> yeah. But these, I mean, these lies, they, they come up, it is amazing how so many of the errors that, that, that uh, flourish in our day are really just recycled old things that come back looking, looking new and fresh, and they're not. Finally, just going to give a, a couple minutes to implications for us. We don't have much time here, but this is, again, sort of drawing together worldview implications from what we've seen about the spirit in creation and providence. And the first one is to value the goodness, order, and abundance of the natural world. God created the world. He declared it very good. Um, what does that mean? Um, it certainly must mean good for its purpose, utility, like it's useful. But it, it means more than that. If you look at um, a few verses later, Genesis 2.9, it says this about the garden. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. You have aesthetic goodness. It's beautiful. It's just good to look at. And then you have usefulness. It's good for food. You can actually like profit from it. 
And that's a really good paradigm for what the very goodness of creation, which again is the spirit, the fruit of the spirit's ordering and filling, is it's beautiful and it's useful. And this is, of course, a, an overflow of the abundance and blessedness of God's own, God's own character, his own eternal blessedness. And so, man, we look all around creation and we see, we often, we go, this is beautiful. God created this. But maybe we go a step further and say, this is from the mind and wisdom of God, from the, the overflow of his own blessedness and the, the creative, perfecting, life-giving power of the Spirit that we see the beauty of, of life. We see the beauty in the order of creation. That's what we're seeing, his stamp in that. And, and that, that, again, doesn't just go for, like, we go out to a national park and look around. That goes for human knowledge, human endeavors. And uh, a biblical, a healthy biblical view of kind of human skill, knowledge, ability isn't to be purely critical and say, oh, it's bad. If it's the world, it's bad. But it's also to be um, appreciative and saying the Holy Spirit and God's working in providence to give good things. Yeah, Matt? Well, I was going to say is, would you say beauty is objective? When I say beauty is objective, I think... I don't know if that's the whole story, but I think there is objectivity to beauty, yes. Um, I don't think it's a purely... No, I don't think it's purely subjective. That's a postmodern thing, I think. Um, that I, I do think there's, there's these transcendental eternals in the mind of God. Beauty, goodness, and truth has been called. Um, of which all instances of beauty, goodness, and truth are participating. I couldn't defend that very rigorously, but I do think that is an implication of this. Yeah. Right. But also you can see the beauty in the design of, yeah. a, of a machine that somebody designed and you can be in awe that somebody could think of that. Yeah. God gave them this design to yeah. something like a locomotive or something. Yeah. You know, it's just astounding. But there are lots of things that nobody can see for thousands of yeah. years in the deep sea or like Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. It's overflow of his his own. Wisdom and bounty, and yeah, Mother Nature, or whatever. Yeah. yeah, Randy, we're gonna, those are all good points, Ron. I appreciate that, yeah. Randy. Biblical viewpoint or worldview, yeah. God created everything and it's all good and it's perfect and it works like it's supposed to. However, when I see mosquitoes, yes. I dislike them. When I see them and I'm amazed at how they were created and what they do, yeah. I don't like it. <laughs> so that's a really good point. And it's basically, we have to leave it at this that there is beauty, order, goodness, abundance that's that's. Uh, breathed into creation by the, the life-giving power of the Spirit. There's also fallenness. There's corruption. And when we're looking at plants, animals, 
human government, uh, human intel, you know, intellectual goods, skill. We're always, there's both. And the Bible doesn't let us land on either one as ultimate. There's, there's creational goodness. There's fallenness into sin. We, we, this is another area where we run into problems if one of them is the whole story. If, uh, if we're completely oppositional and everything out in the world is bad, that's not what the Bible is doing when it's warning us against the world. But it's also naive of us to just everything that we find is good. Right? Like we know there's fallenness and, and corruption. So big worldview pieces that are really helpful for our understanding of, and, and we can't draw it out right now, but environment, our relationship to the environment, uh, the works of kind of human endeavors and, and culture. But uh, let's close in prayer just to respect our time. And I'm glad to interact afterward if you have any questions or thoughts. Father God, we praise you and your son, the word by whom you spoke creation into being and the spirit, the perfecting life giver. We're in awe of the world you've made and how it, it, uh, it just surges with, with the display of your goodness and your power and creativity. Uh, we thank you for our existence and our ability to partake of these things. And as those redeemed in Christ, uh, the ability to once again enjoy and to see these things for what they are, not be led astray as we once were into idolatry, but to see you as the God who is the, the fountain of all these good gifts. We pray we would just better and better learn how to discern what they are and uh, return them back to you in, in worship and our enjoyment of them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.